Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up onto a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our Father, we now humble our hearts before you and we're open to whatever it is your spirit would want to tell us. Not only what he has for people sitting across the room or who might get it by tape or by radio, but what do you have for us here this morning? Teach us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was an Englishman and a Frenchman and a Russian, and they were all talking about the meaning of happiness. And the English bloke was first. He said, happiness is coming home after a long, hard day's work and finding your slippers warmed by the fire. And the French looked at him. Frenchman said, you British are so unromantic. Happiness is dinner with the beautiful girl at the finest restaurant. And the Russian piped up and he said, you're both wrong. Happiness is being in bed with your wife And at four in the morning when the knocking comes at the door and it's the secret police and he says, Ivan Ivanovich, you're under arrest. And you say, Ivan Ivanovich lives next door. (laughs) It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? We dream about what would make us happy. I'd be happy if only I could own this or if only I could move there. I'd be happy if only I could marry her. I'd be happy if only I wouldn't have married him or whatever it might be. Well, God has a lot to say about happiness. And the bottom line is happiness comes from holiness. Fifty-six times in the Bible you'll find the words Lord and joy, or God and joy, coupled together. God is a God of joy. It's sad that so many have connected Christianity with exactly the opposite. So many people outside of the Christian faith think that God is some cosmic killjoy. You have a frown on your face. You must be a Christian. Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, I would have entered the ministry except all the ministers I know act and look so much like undertakers. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote in his journal as if an extraordinary event had taken place, I went to church today and I'm not depressed. Now anyone who has ever heard the name Jesus Christ and knows anything about his teachings has heard of the Beatitudes that we're reading here. And you'll notice that each of them begins with a very biblical-sounding word, an ecclesiastical word. Some would even say a stuffy-sounding word. Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, etc. 
The word that is used here is the Greek word makarios, which means happy, blissful, to be envied. It speaks of inward contentedness. In fact, listen to the Amplified Bible. Blessed, happy, to be envied and spiritually prosperous. That is with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation. That's what that word encompasses. A few general things about the Beatitudes that you should know before we just jump right in. Number one, these are proclamations. They're not a subjective feeling that would wane, go up and down. Oh, I feel blessed today. Don't feel so blessed today. It's not something that is a feeling. It is a proclamation, an objective proclamation made by Christ This describes those who follow me, he would say. It's my proclamation elucidated by the second half of the verse. So number one, they're proclamations. Something else, they're paradoxical. They don't make sense. They're counterintuitive. You read them and you first go, huh? I mean, just look at the list. Humility, mourning, persecution. Does that sound like the stuff that happiness is made out of? doesn't sound like it to me. It sort of sounds like misery with another name. They're paradoxical, you find out. And something else. They're progressive. They start and they follow a progression all the way through. In other words, the person who is poor in spirit, it will follow that that person will mourn over the condition that he or she finds. That will turn them into a meek person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness and is a peacemaker and... Uh, is eventually, because of that, persecuted by the outside world. So you'll find that they are progressive. But the first two Beatitudes this morning show us the entrance of the kingdom of God. How do you get in to heaven or the kingdom of God? And two easy points. We enter the kingdom humbly. We enter the kingdom sorrowfully. Those are the two points Jesus would make. We enter the kingdom humbly we enter the kingdom sorrowfully. Look at the first one. Blessed, oh how happy, to be envied are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word for poor is a strong word. It's the Greek word tokos, which literally means poverty stricken, poverty stricken or beggarly. It means to shrink or to cower, or even to cringe. The classical Greeks used this word to describe a beggar who with one hand held it out to receive food or money and with the other hand would cover the eyes because he was so embarrassed to be a beggar. In other words, abject poverty is the word and the meaning behind the word. However, in the Old Testament... The idea of being poor wasn't limited to just physical poverty. It had a connotation that developed with it. It came to mean a humble emptiness and a dependence upon God. There are several scriptures. I'm not going to point them all out. But one is in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, that uses the word poor to refer to the spiritually needy. The Lord says, On this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and him who trembles at my word. Now, can you see how radically different 
the value system of the kingdom of God is as opposed to the value system of the world in which we live. The world values self-confidence, self-assurance, self-reliance, not this stuff. What if you were to go to a prospective employer and you said, I'd like to have a job here, but I just sort of have to warn you that uh, I have a lot of faults and I'm weak and I'm a sinner. (laughs) How would that hiring process go? What makes good salespeople? Those who are poised and confident. They'll grab your hand, look in your eyes, smile and say, Skip, did you know this can opener can change your life? That's what sells stuff. Confidence. Reliance. I want to read something to you that uh, I copied from two sources. This is just to show you how opposite the values of God's kingdom are and the values of this world are. This is an ad from Psychology Today. I love me. I'm not conceited. I'm just a good friend to myself. And I like to do whatever makes me feel good. Now, I'm going way out on a limb here. This is from Shirley MacLaine. She writes... (laughs) The most pleasurable journey you take is through yourself. The only sustaining love involvement is with yourself. When you look back on your life and you try to figure out where you've been, where you're going, when you look at your work, your love affairs, your marriages, your children, your pain, your happiness, when you examine all of that closely, what you really find out is the only person you really go to bed with is yourself. The only thing you have is working to the consummation of your own identity, and that's what I've been trying to do all my life. Now, you listen to this, but you just read what Jesus said, that you don't enter the kingdom of heaven by exalting yourself, focusing on yourself, but by humbling yourself. Be careful. Be careful not to equate humility with a false humility. There is such a thing as a false humility. Paul wrote about it in Colossians chapter 1 and 2. He spoke about those who are pushing a self-imposed religion, false humility, and the worshiping of angels. You know what a false humility is. It's those people who are so proud that they're so humble, right? They come off being humble, but in reality, it is a pride that is seeking attention. And so they might say, well, I'm not really very good at anything. I can't sing. I can't do anything. Because they want the attention and they want the reaction of you to go, oh, no, you're really awesome. That's what they're looking for. It's a false humility. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that you are spiritually bankrupt before God. You're spiritually destitute and poverty-stricken, no matter your education, your social status, your wealth, your accomplishments, or even your religious background. It doesn't matter. One person put it this way, let a man go to a psychiatrist and he'll become an adjusted sinner. Send him to the best schools in the country and you'll have an educated sinner. Send him to a good doctor and a health club and you'll have a healthy sinner. Give them a lot of money, you'll have a wealthy sinner. Have them join a church, sign a card, and turn over a new leaf, and you'll have a religious sinner. 
but have him go in sincere repentance to the cross and you'll have a forgiven sinner. See, those who are poor in spirit realize I have no saving resources in and of myself. My pride is gone. My self-reliance is gone. My self-assurance is gone. And I am naked and empty before a holy God. That's poor in spirit. The language of the poor in spirit, much like the hymn that says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's poor in spirit. Where does it come from? Being poor in spirit comes from two things. Number one, you see yourself for who you really are, and you see God for who he really is. In fact, one follows the other. When you see God for who he really is, you see yourself for who you really are. Example. We all know the story of Peter, self-reliant, very courageous kind of a guy, an expert fisherman, he thought. Until Jesus wanted to go fishing one day. And Jesus said, Peter, launch out into the deep for a great catch. And Peter sort of hemmed and hawed, didn't he? Lord, I've been fishing all night, caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word. That's how I picture him saying it. As if to say, look, this is my job, Jesus. I am a fisherman. I've been doing this all my life. I get Field and Stream magazine, okay? But you're the preacher. You want to go fishing. I'll humor you. So they go out. You know the story. So many fish, the nets are about to break. And what does Peter say then? Does he say, well, now, I knew this was going to happen because I am the expert. No, he says as he falls on his knees, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Not I am an expert fisherman. I am a sinful man. What happened? Peter caught a glimpse of Peter when he caught a glimpse of who this man Jesus really was. Made him poor in spirit. Another example, Isaiah the prophet, a prophet, a bigwig in Israel, gets a vision of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And he saw this magnificent vision of heaven, and he said, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of sinful lips, and I dwell in the midst of a generation of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. What happened? Poor in spirit. He saw God in holiness, and in seeing God, he saw himself. And he didn't say, wow, what about me? You know, a lot of people think that Isaiah might have done that. He saw a vision of God that few people, if any, have ever seen. You think, man, this guy could be on Christian television, write books, make the circuit. My vision of God. It made him humble. It made him poverty-stricken in spirit. Max Lucado put it this way. You don't impress the engineers at NASA with your paper airplane. You don't boast about your crayon sketches in the presence of Picasso. You never equate uh, being equal with Einstein because you can write H2O. Nor do you boast about your goodness in the presence of the perfect one. Seeing God for who he is, you'll see yourself for who you really are. And the reaction is, woe is me. If you've ever been over to Israel, there's a church in Bethlehem called the Church of the Nativity where some actually believe is the grotto, the cave where Jesus Christ was born. 
What's interesting about this church is not really the church or the entrance to the church because it's an odd entrance. To get into this church, you have to go through a four-foot-high door. It's a very low door, so you have to bend to enter. And I asked somebody about that. Why do you do that? I said, well, that's from years ago. They didn't want animals into the church, so they lowered the entrance. Others will tell you that's not really the reason. The reason is because when you come in the presence of God, you come bowing. You enter in a humble way. And that's what Jesus is saying. Blessed, oh, how happy to be envied are those who realize that before God they are poverty-stricken. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, verse 4, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's the second one. We enter not only humbly, but we enter sorrowfully. By the way, notice it doesn't say, blessed are those who moan. (laughs) Just thought I'd throw that out. God hates complaining, doesn't he? The children of Israel tried that for years. Somebody gave me on my staff years ago, and I've kept it always in my office, a little plaque that says, Thou shalt not whine. So when it says mourn, it's not moan, it's mourn. And it's the second one is tied to the first one. It's this sorrow. Now, sorrow is commonplace. We all know that. Sorrow balances out joy in our life. And, and, and though we might say, I don't want any sorrow in my life, we need some of it because it balances out life and all of its joys. The Arabs have a proverb They say all sunshine will just make a desert. We need some rainfall from time to time. It makes us mature. There's a poem by Robert Browning Hamilton where he says, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but made me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her as sorrow walked with me. It's needful. But what gets our attention here is you'll notice the word blessed, happy, is associated with mourning. It sounds like it's getting weirder. It sounds like a great paradox. In fact, one translation puts it this way. Happy are those who are sad. That sounds like a contradiction. Happy are those who are sad. Our Constitution has built within it life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So we think happiness comes from avoiding pain, avoiding sorrow, avoiding anything that would bring mourning. In fact, there has even been, in the last several years, a movement in the Christian church known as the Holy Laughter Movement, where In the spirit, you just kind of act goofy and you start laughing out loud uncontrollably and that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. You know, the more I read the Bible, I'm convinced one of the great deeds of the church is some holy mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. They're the ones that will be comforted. There's nine Greek words for mourn. I found out that this one is the strongest one that you could employ. It means a heartfelt grief, a deep agony usually reserved for someone who has died. So what does Jesus mean exactly then when he says, blessed are those who mourn? Is it just anybody sorrowful is blessed? No. 
The idea isn't the blessing of crying over a lost one or crying over loneliness or crying over discouragement. The context is what we just read. Since in the very first beatitude, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. It's a spiritual poverty that we recognize. So too, this morning is a spiritual morning. It's mourning over what we find in our spiritual condition before God. If when I stand before a holy God, I say, woe is me, I recognize my condition, it causes me to be sorry for my condition. Example. King David, the great psalmist of Israel, had a lot of ups and downs in his life and a lot of bad experiences. He was discouraged. He was lonely. He wrote about that all over the Psalms. He lost a child at one portion of his life. He had uh, splits in his family, murder in his family. Even his great uh, son Absalom, whom he loved, was killed. And he sorrowed over all of those episodes. But what was the most gut-wrenching, heartfelt sorrow of all of those experiences in his life? This is when he sinned against God. And the prophet Nathan came to him and said, You are the man. He writes it in Psalm 51. This heartfelt against thee and thee only have I sinned and committed this iniquity in your sight. Purge me with hyssop that I will be clean. It's a deep heartfelt lament over his spiritual condition. Now what I'd like you to do is keep a marker here for a moment and go over with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 18. I'd like to show you a little story of two men, one who was poor in spirit and mourned, and one who thought he didn't need to because he was good enough. Luke chapter 18. Let's take a look at it. Just checking, see if you're around. Verse 9. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. You know who they are. They're religious people. They've been around a long time. And the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus, interesting, with himself. Here's a guy praying, but he's not praying to God. He's praying with himself. And when he would hear himself pray, he'd think, wow, that's good. I'm really good. Listen to his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You know, some people pray when they pray out loud. They're not praying to God. They're praying to sort of ditz somebody else. Lord, I pray that you'd show my wife that she's wrong on this, that I'm right You know I'm right, Lord, don't you? (laughs) It's especially dirty if you try it out loud in front of somebody. But go on. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
Here's a guy who compared himself with others, and it's always easy to find someone else who's worse than you are. And when you do, it makes you feel better about yourself. And thus his prayer. Now, what's his problem? What's the Pharisee's problem? The Pharisee's problem is he wasn't poor in spirit. Because he wasn't poor in spirit, he didn't mourn over his spiritual condition. And because he didn't mourn over his spiritual condition, Jesus said he was not justified before God. But the other fellow, the tax collector, was poor in spirit, recognized his poverty-stricken condition before God, mourned over it like the beggarly person who would cover his eyes in shame as if not to be recognized. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said this man was justified. Folks, this is why religious people are some of the hardest people to preach the gospel to. They know it already. They've heard it before. They're good enough. Augustine said it was his religious upbringing and religious pride that was the greatest barrier to his receiving the gospel. He was proud of his status, his wealth, his intellect. He thought he has so much to offer God. And he wasn't poor in spirit till much later. I think there's another word in the New Testament that in, encapsulates this process of poor in spirit and mourning. It's the word repentance. The word repentance, that single word that has been dropped out of the Christian vocabulary over the last several years is a word that encapsulates this process. You know, Paul the Apostle wrote a letter to the Corinthian church that was a severe letter, he called it, a harsh letter. And it caused some sorrow. And so he writes in 2 Corinthians, in referring to that harsh letter, these words, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10. I am happy, he writes, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For godly sorrow works repentance. My wife, Lenya, years ago, well, she was raised in an atheistic environment. Her father was an atheist and tucked her in bed at night and told her why God doesn't exist and that you live by your own decisions and your own help. There is no God. So that's how she grew up. Uh, That boat was rocked when he came to Christ and uh, sort of upset her whole way of thinking. She was reading a booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. And she must have misinterpreted it because in her mind she thought, oh, great, I get the picture. I put Jesus on the throne of my life and everything just sort of falls into place and I get whatever I want. So she prayed a little prayer, God, come in and be in charge. She didn't really feel like much had happened. And one day she was sitting in church and she felt very uneasy during the message. I don't like this message. I'm uncomfortable by this message. Afterwards, she went into the prayer room over at Calvary in Costa Mesa. And one of the counselors was was named Malcolm Wilde. He's from England. And Malcolm had been reading up on repentance and reading the the history of Charles Finney. So as Lenny described how she felt, Malcolm said, Have you repented of your sin? And she said, Have I what? Had never heard the word before. And describe what the Bible talks about. When you come to faith in Christ, you come by turning from sin and turning to Christ, the poor in spirit, the mourning over it. That day she did it as she came truly to Christ. It's interesting. If you look in the Bible, the New Testament especially, you find out that repentance is one of the keynotes of the New Testament. 
The very first message John the Baptist ever preached was this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The first words out of Jesus' lips at least recorded is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Here's my question. If repentance is such a keynote in the New Testament, why is it so seldom preached today? I give you what I think are a couple answers. Answer number one, we don't like to admit the reality of personal sin. You calling me a sinner, boy? No, the criminals are sinners. I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as they are. You know, sort of the college days, our professor may have graded on a curve, so we think God's going to grade on a curve. I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that person. And so we neglect the reality of personal sin. Reason number two, I believe, it's an uncomfortable message to preach. It's not that palatable. People don't like it. It's threatening. They might not come back next week if you preach messages like that. Truth is, people today don't like to call it what it is. The Bible calls it sin. Well, we don't like that word. Call it issues. I have issues. That's what I got. Or hang-ups. That's a better one. I got a hang-up. I have a problem. You know, when you call it what the Bible says it is, sin, and you deal with it as the Bible says to deal with it, that's when you get comforted. It's blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Not blessed are those who deflect, but those who mourn. So, again, just notice the difference between the values of the kingdom of God just so far and the values of the world that you and I live in every day. The world would say, pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. And the Bible would say, come in confession before a holy, righteous God and mourn, mourn, mourn. Very, very different. You want to be blessed? You want to be a blessed person, a blessed life? You want contentment? The blessed person is the repentant person. The repentant person is the forgiven person. You come that way and you will be truly, as God says, blessed, happy, contented to be envied. That's God's way. You can respond to your spiritual condition like the Pharisee. I'm glad that I'm not like those people. Number two, you can respond to your spiritual condition and say, well, okay, I admit it. I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. So I'm going to turn to self-help philosophies. I'm going to fix myself. Don't need any help from God. I'll do it myself. Or you can come the only way, the right way, in brokenness to the cross and say, simply to thy cross I cling, There's nothing in my hand I bring. There was an old minister who loved to tell a certain story. Now, all ministers love to tell stories, but this guy, his favorite story was how he survived the Johnstown flood. He actually survived it, and it was his great story. Every group he was in, he'd say, Hey, have I told you how I survived the Johnstown flood? Everybody in town knew it. The old guy died. He went to heaven. His first day in heaven. 
There was Peter. You know, in these stories, Peter's always there, right, with a clipboard or whatever. (laughs) And Peter says, now, uh, Reverend so-and-so, it's your first night in heaven. Tonight's orientation. Everybody's going to be there. We want you there. I'll be there. Hey, Peter, can I tell my story of how I survived the great Johnstown flood? Peter looked at him, smiled, and he said, well, sure, I suppose you can, but just remember, Noah will be in the audience tonight. (laughs) It's just harder to tell how you survived a flood when Noah's in that audience, isn't it? As we close... Would you just remember that every time you come to church and every time you and I meet somebody that we know knows that we're Christians and and however we'd want to posture ourselves, God's in the audience. God knows you, everything about you, and God loves you and is willing to forgive everything you've ever done if you come His way. If you come broken in spirit and if you come mourning over that condition, he'll receive you no other way but that way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we now bow our hearts. We take just a moment as we sift through in our minds all that we have heard in the last several minutes, the words directly from the lips of a loving Savior who came into this world with one reason, not to pat people on the back as much as to lead them to heaven by the blood that he would shed. And so, Father, here he is telling us, you'll be so blessed, enviably blissful and happy if you admit your bankruptcy before a holy God and you mourn over that condition. And so we think about our own lives and some of us have thought, well, I thought I was okay just coming to church. I thought I was okay just hanging out with the right people. I thought I was okay because I have parents who come to church. Lord, you know us. You're in the audience. And you're sifting through hearts right now. We would pray. We would pray that if there's someone here who doesn't know you personally, has not come to you authentically, in true repentance, in brokenness, in faith that is expressed in mourning. Lord, we pray that you'd bring them to the foot of the cross, not that they'd be a well-adjusted sinner, but a forgiven sinner. Thank you for your great love to come from the heights of heaven to the depths of this earth to make sure that we got to where you are. We pray for anyone here who's sitting here right now or maybe watching by webcast, and they realize, boy, I haven't, I haven't really made that kind of a choice yet. I haven't personalized it that way. It could be, and I believe so, that God is dealing with your heart, friend. And I'd like to pray for you as we close the service. You're in an environment where people love you and are praying for you. You've got nothing to lose. You've got everything to gain. And I want to give you an opportunity to come to Jesus Christ but I need to know who you are. So if you're here while we are all praying, if you're sitting here and you want to give your life to Christ, I want you to raise your hand up. Raise it up so I can see you while we're praying and I'll notice you and we'll pray for you. God bless you. Right over here to my right. You as well. 
Anyone else? Raise your hand up. You've got nothing to lose. You've got heaven to gain. You've got abundant life to gain. Anyone else? Are you sure? Are you absolutely sure that if you were to die, you'd be in God's presence forever? If not, slip that hand up. We'll pray for you. God bless you. Yes, ma'am, in the back. Right in the back. Yep. Several of you. Lord, it is our prayer that these who have raised their hands, these lives would be totally blessed. You'd proclaim them so as they come in sincere repentance and faith in you. As you add them to the flock, Lord, may they grow and be nourished and filled with joy. In Jesus' name, amen, 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 amen.